Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all. Before we get started this morning, I'll explain why I'm dressed like this. We're not reverting back to an old denominational days, but right after my responsibilities at the venues here this morning, I'm going to Herman Lohmeyer for a funeral. So that's why I'm dressed like that. Now I've got my tie in the car and I drive a fast car <laughs> down to the funeral home. And speaking of funerals and death and life after death, uh, we have a A sad announcement to make today that uh, a gentleman who has been since we've been in this building for uh, since 2013 sat right to my left on the second row uh, passed away uh, this week his name is Bob White and here is his picture right there with Bob and Sandy and Sandy is here this morning so I met Bob and Sandy back when uh, I was pastoring Fellowship Bible Church, and uh, I did a funeral for a friend of theirs that uh, uh, had been coming to our church, and uh, Bob and Sandy came to that funeral, and we struck up a friendship there, and so we've known each other for, I don't know, 15, 18 years or something like that, Sandy, and we'll let everybody know when the funeral is. Uh, we're meeting with the funeral home tomorrow and we'll let everybody know if you want to attend that service and support Sandy. Uh, respect Sandy's uh, emotional fragility right now but I know that you'll want to extend to her your love and your sympathies. We also, if you all know Bob very very well because he was always down on the front row but uh, second row but there was another gentleman in our community who died about three weeks ago, uh, and his widow today is here. Uh, Gail Bricker is her name, and Jeffrey is uh, his name. So while we're thinking about Sandy, we'll also think about Gail today as well. So we'll pray for them. Gosh, that's just a really sad way to start, isn't it? Uh, it's, a, it's a part of life. It's, it's a part of my weekly life, dealing with death and helping people transition from thinking about life on earth to thinking about life in another world and in other dimensions. And thank you for your support for this family. All right, see if I can preach in a suit again. <laughs> Let me introduce you to a guy named Bob Otandi. He is a CEO of a company in Dallas, a logistics company. He's doing very well financially, well, well over $100,000 a year salary. And uh, what he did was he had recently sold his house, and he's looking to buy another house. And uh, he sold his house for a nice profit, and he was able to uh, make a 20%, over a 20% down payment on the next house, which uh, was equivalent to about $100,000. His credit score was in the upper 700s. Uh, he found a really nice home in an upscale neighborhood in Dallas in the school system uh, where his son wanted to play ball. He applied for a loan with the Navy Federal Credit Union and was denied. 20% down, credit score in the upper 700s, a well-paying job, not much debt. 
But Bob wasn't alone. According to the data, thousands of black applicants were rejected. Investigation discovered that Navy Federal was twice as likely to reject black applicants than white applicants, even when things like their income, their down payment amount, their credit scores, their, their debt ratio, even when all those things were the same, they rejected the black applicants more than the white applicants. Homes of similar quality and neighborhoods with similar amenities are worth 23% less in predominantly black neighborhoods than they are in neighborhoods where there aren't as many black residents. Lisa Rice is the CEO of the National Fair Housing Allowance, and she says that the black-white ownership gap is wider today than in 1968 when we passed the Federal Fair Housing Act. And then she says it's a larger systemic issue. Let's focus today on the word systemic. Systemic inequality, sometimes a synonym is used, a structural inequality. So what in the world does that mean? Well, let's go to Wikipedia. Love Wikipedia. Structural inequality describes disparities in wealth, resources, and other outcomes that result from discriminatory practices, I'm sorry, discriminatory practices of institutions such as legal, educational, business, government, and health care systems. Structural inequalities result from power imbalances when one group has historically set the rules that intentionally or unintentionally exclude others from access to wealth and resources. Okay, you're saying, Philip, we're in church today. What are you doing talking about this kind of stuff? This sounds more political than it does spiritual. What does all of this that you're talking about have to do with the church? Well, as you know, as we've seen before, we have, uh, we're talking about the goals that we have this year. And our goal that we're talking about today our third of the fourth goals is concerning social justice. Social justice, fixing the past. When we began the venues in 2013, one of our driving purposes was to respond to the social needs of our community. And so we developed a social response team. And the majority of our time, our resources, and our energy have been for the last 11 years invested in responding to needs that we have in this area. And all of this came about because of our understanding of the core part of spirituality that was informed by these passages of Scripture. Jesus says, They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needy clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. James, in the latter part of the Christian New Testament, says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, 
is dead. John writes, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, well, how can the love of God be in that person? Then back to the Hebrew scripture. Proverbs says, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. It's a strong verse. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for God. And that's the Christian worldview. That is the Hebrew worldview that we see. But this idea of caring for other people transcends all boundaries of religion. It goes into other religions. For example, Islam. This is uh, Dr. Mashid Ansari, who is a professor of Islamic studies. And she says, in Islam, the prophet says, kindness is a marker of faith. Whoever is not kind has no faith. I'm just so uh, encouraged and uh, inspired by that Islamic view of kindness and the role that it plays in life. And then there is Guru Nanak, who is the founder of the Sikh religion. And uh, he said, the highest religion is to rise to universal brotherhood. Yes, to consider all creatures your equals. So it seems to me that caring for other people, being kind and showing compassion to other people is a common thread in all religions. It unites all of us. We can all agree, no matter what label our spirituality might be, in this important, important issue of being kind and being compassionate and caring for others. So this is what we do at the venues. This is who we are, as Chris said a moment ago. In social response, however, we respond to an immediate need. So we want to add to our social response, responding to the need, this element of social justice. Why is there a need? What's the cause of the problem? Let's not put a Band-Aid on it. Let's find out where the infection is and deal with that infection. So here is social response. Here is social justice. To understand the difference, we're calling that a downstream and an upstream look at the problems that we have. To explain what I mean there, there happens to be a video on that. So let's take a look at the video who does a lot better than I in explaining it. Imagine a warm, sunny afternoon. Suddenly, you spot someone in the river being swept downstream and struggling to stay afloat. Without hesitation, you jump into the river and help the person to shore. As you help that person dry off, you hear another cry for help. Someone else is being swept downstream. Immediately, you jump into the water again and pull out this second person. This scenario continues all afternoon. As you pull someone safely to land, you have to jump back in and save someone else. Finally, you say, I can't go on like this, and walk upstream to see what's happening. As you walk upstream, you warn other bystanders. People are falling in the river. Please help them. Tell everyone you know. Finally, you find the problem. You notice a large hole in a bridge which is causing people to fall in. Something must be done. First, 
You put up a sign to warn others about the hole in the bridge. You warn anyone you see about the hole and ask them to help spread the word of caution. You even start offering classes to help people in the community learn how to swim just in case they do fall in. Finally, you realize that to truly minimize the problem, you have to repair the bridge. You work with others in the community to close the hole. Occasionally, some people still fall in, but there are far fewer people that need to be saved. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? So social response has been a downstream approach to the needs that we have. We're just pulling people out of the water. Sometime we need to go upstream and fix the damn bridge. And that's what social justice is all about. Social justice is designed to address upstream root causes of social injustices where we will knock down the barriers that people have to education, knock down the barriers that have been set up concerning health care, jobs, economic freedom. Well, Philip, is that really our business? Isn't that something that elections are about and government is about and all that other stuff? I don't know. What do you think? Y'all ever heard of Josh McDowell? If you grew up in an evangelical world as I did, you probably know him. He was most famous for his book called The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a very thick book on all the arguments that you can give those uh, people who aren't Christians as reasons why Christianity is true. And it's a very thick book. It answers all, supposedly, all the, the contradictions that Scripture might have. I always thought it was weird, even as a high schooler, why would there need to be a book that would answer questions about contradictions if the Bible didn't have any contradictions. I still kind of scratch my head on that. Well, back in 2021, Josh McDowell was speaking at a conference of American Association of Christian Counselors, and he said, among other things, this right here. He said, the Bible only focuses on individual sin, not structural sin. That's how I was raised, that the Bible really didn't address too much of society's sin. It only was interested in individual sin. And if we could get every individual saved, then that would kind of have a ripple effect and it would help the society. What do you think about that? Does the scripture address societal, structural, systemic sin? Or does Josh McDowell have a point? So structural sin is the idea that we are responsible for some of the unjust sinful actions, not just that we do today, but we are somewhat responsible for the ones that were done in generations before. That there were injustices baked into the structure, to the pie of our systems. And that we're responsible not just for what we do today, but we're responsible somewhat for what was done yesterday because what was done yesterday is a rock in the pond and it's a ripple effect and we are experiencing the ripples of what was done before. 
We've heard the saying, give a man a fish and he will eat for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, he will eat for a lifetime. Structural injustice, structural systemic sin adds this third perspective. Structural injustice says there is for some people a sign by the lake that says no fishing. Some people aren't even allowed to get the fishing pole and go to the lake. Not only are they not taught to fish, they're not allowed to go fish. That's structural injustice. So does the Bible only teach individual and not structural responsibility? Are we only responsible for what we do and not for what was done before? I don't know. Let's look at the scripture and see. Go back to the Hebrew prophets. First of all, there's the prophet Daniel. He's the same guy that was told the story about the lion's den. Y'all heard that when you were a child. In this prophecy, it says, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill, our sins, and get this, and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. So there's a recognition that, yep, we've messed up, we've sinned, but we're also suffering the consequences of our ancestors' sin. The ripple effect. So there's that understanding from the prophet Daniel that, yeah, we do need to acknowledge what was done in the past because it influences what we're doing in the present. Leviticus says... If they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me. Moses is writing what he hears God say. And supposedly God is saying that he wants the people not just to confess their own sin, but confess their sins of their dads, their granddads, their great-grandparents, their ancestors. There's a lot of pushback against that thought today. I just want us to consider why is that principle of confessing and being accountable somewhat to the sins of the past an important thing to God? And the fact that it's important to God, does that change or does that affect how you see that today? Does it at least make you wonder, well, maybe I need to reconsider that. Maybe there is something that happened in the past that I need to acknowledge. And I need to recognize that, wow, that is impacting us in the present. And does God have an expectation upon me? A desire in order to have full healing and full freedom to go back to the past and see what was done. So I can understand what was being done in the present. So I cannot help but look at that and think that there is some precedent for us to recognize and confess the sins of our ancestors. Not because they happened in the past and I wasn't around in the past. I wasn't in control of them. But because what they did then affects what we are doing now. It's like going to a really good therapist 
and where that therapist can walk us through our life and help us to understand that who I am now and how I am living now and the choices that I am making now, they're kind of linked to situations and issues from my past. And I need that holistic view. So addressing structural oppression, systemic injustices, was a major role of the Hebrew prophets. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 10, where Isaiah says, Woe to those who make unjust laws. Woe is a really nice Sunday school way uh, to say damn. (laughs) Damn you who make bad laws that oppress people, that aren't fair, that aren't just. Damn you to those who issue oppressive decrees, who deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. It goes on in Isaiah chapter 1. And God is inviting people, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Or what are the evil deeds? Well, you compensate with the evil deeds with the good deeds. So he says, learn to do the right thing. Seek justice. Seek fairness. Defend people who are oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The sin that Isaiah is pointing out as a voice of God in this situation, was not that they were having sex outside of marriage. It was not that they were listening to rock and roll music. And I say those two things because, man, when I was growing up as a kid, those were the two biggies. (laughs) Every time it talked about sin is don't have sex. Don't listen to rock and roll music because it'll lead to sex. And suddenly I get married and sex is good. But now we have sex to Kenny G and not rock and roll music, I guess. That was not in my notes and I really need to just... I need to move. I'm going to hear about that. You're right. You and Denise are thinking the same thing. But damn it. I never heard in my childhood and my youth any preacher say that the sin that upsets God so much that causes God to bring judgment upon his people is the sin of oppressing the poor and not being fair in our laws and not being just and how we treat people. It was, I think they did that because it was easier to talk about sex than it was about being good to the poor. When you talk about being good to the poor and being just to the poor, it kind of makes wealthy people uncomfortable. And preachers didn't want to offend the wealthy people because the wealthy people were keeping the church afloat. Yeah, I'm not going to have time today. Golly, bum, it's five till. 
seven till. I've got to really hurry. I'm so sorry. So after announcing God's judgment on the nations and rulers, Isaiah reveal, reveals what God is wanting to do. I'll, I'll, oh gosh, yeah, I don't want to go through that right now. Go look it up later. We'll look at that later. So if a community would do what God wanted it to do and work toward a kingdom of God, this is what that kingdom would look like. It would be a kingdom of nonviolence. God's desire is for there to be no violence, that God will judge between the nations, arbitrate for the people. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. They will turn their spears into farming uh, equipment. Nation will not lift up the sword against nation. They're not going to learn war anymore. Ain't going to learn war no more. The good folk song of the early 60s. There would be equity for the poor. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. And the wicked were people who were oppressing the poor. And God says, I'm going to make this right. I want to stand for the marginalized. Uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote a book called The Prophets, and he described the role of the prophets as being as exegesis of existence from a divine perspective. That's a fancy way of saying that is the role of the prophet to explain to people how God sees the world. And there's every once in a while, I feel myself move into that role of a prophet. And I want to help myself, I want to help you see the world as God sees the world. What does God see in our world today? Does God see the disparity and the injustice, the inequity when it comes to medical care, employment, housing, economics? Is that even our business as a church? I don't think we can say no. I can't read these passages and say, that's not our business. That's not the role of... It is the role of government, but we can't let the government just do it. Government is an arm. Government is a, is a part of the process of, of dealing with social injustices. Amos, another prophet, says, I hate, I despise your festivals. I don't like what y'all do on Sunday morning is what he's saying. It's not about going to church. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings. I'm not going to accept them. No, we'll, we'll still accept your offerings. <laughs> and the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Quit singing these hymns. Quit singing these worship songs. They don't mean anything to God. I will not listen to the melody of your guitars, but let justice roll down like, a river, like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's not about going through the motions of worship on Sunday morning if we're not practicing justice Monday through Saturday. The most important thing that we do is not worship God. 
That's what he was saying. I don't want you to do that on Sunday morning, on Sabbath, on Saturday. I want you to practice justice. Let justice roll down. Like the waterfalls. All right. You abuse the poor and demand heavy taxes from them. You've built expensive homes. You won't enjoy them. The punishment's coming. You've planted vineyards, but you're not going to get any wine because of the abuse that you have. You know, since 1980, real income of the bottom 50% has grown about 20%. That's pretty good. Since 1980, the income has grown about 20% for the bottom 50%. But the top 10% since 1980 have seen their income grow by 145%. How does that statistic fit with what the prophets have said? James says this, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail. God is not down on wealth. He's not down on money. He's down on greed. And he's down on hoarding it. He's down on not helping people with what we have. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten up your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, this is what I'm talking about. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. The cries of the 50% have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. When the top 10% income increases 145%, when the 50% below, only 20%, that's not just. It is just not just. And God sees it. And I think God is doing something about it.